All yours. Oh, thank you very much, Sam. Um, hello again from Hong Kong. Um, it's great to be here to worship with you once again. And um, yeah, I've heard that you guys have gone back into uh, kind of a lockdown. So I guess it's full online uh, service. And again, um, yeah, it is. I'm sure it's frustrating. I remember when um, Hong Kong, we, I think, uh, early, early, earlier in the year when we first resumed in-person services and then we had to go back into lockdown again and everything went back online. Um, it was definitely, it definitely felt like kind of one step forward, two steps back. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I was um, thinking about it and um, yeah, I mean, if this happened kind of years ago, we wouldn't even have Zoom and I was, and I think it's, even though it's not ideal, it's still such a blessing to be able to worship together online and that we have this technology um, this medium that allows us to, to gather together, um, even despite it being online. And um, yeah, so it's still such a joy to be able to worship um, with all of you together. And um, yeah, it's definitely a, a privilege and pleasure for me to, to share with you once again. Um, so why don't um, you join me in prayer and, and we can get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, for today, Lord. We thank you for this joy and this privilege and this blessing to be able to, to, to worship together as one body, Lord. And we know that um, the church isn't, it, it isn't the building, it isn't the room that we're in, but um, it, it is your people, Lord. And um, help us to remember that, um, that, there, that we have brothers and sisters all over the world, Lord, and we thank you for this technology that allows us to, to gather in this way, Lord, even uh, though we're all in different places, Lord, we can still come together and worship the same God and worship you, Lord. So we pray that you would speak through um, this, uh, your word, uh, as we go through Amos chapter 8, Lord. Uh, we pray that um, our hearts would be um, ready to receive uh, whatever you have um, prepared for us, Lord. And we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be with us today. Um, so we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we will pick up from chapter eight of Amos. Um, so why don't we go through the passage together and we'll read through it. And I'll be reading from the ESV version. So Amos chapter eight. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile? 
and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So, as you know, uh, I'm speaking to you today from Hong Kong, and um, it's the city where I grew up, and it's where I spent most of my childhood. And for children in Hong Kong, uh, the government uh, arranges regular health checkups uh, for kids as they kind of go through their primary school ages. Um, so I don't quite remember how regular these checkups were, but we had them every now and then as we were growing up. Um, so these were checkups that, where they would kind of measure your height, your weight, check your eyesight, um, check your hearing, um, kind of general things uh, to make sure that the child is developing properly. Um, and so one of these tests uh, would involve asking the child to bend over and touch his toes, and the doctor would uh, look at his back to see if the spine was aligned properly. So I was about eight or nine uh, when I did this test, and what they found was when I bent forward, um, they could see that one side of my back was higher than the other. And I was eventually diagnosed with scoliosis. Um, so this is a condition where the spine curves sideways, uh, so either in a C shape or in an S shape. So it's a reasonably common condition, and, and quite a few people have a very mild uh, case of it. So usually uh, when, it, when people first discover it, uh, if they were young, then they would the doctors would observe and see if the condition got any worse. Um, but, and if it did, then the normal course of treatment would involve wearing a body brace, sort of like a kind of hard plastic corset um, for over 20 hours a day. Um, so basically squeezing the spine and holding it straight. Um, so with the idea that as the body uh, matures and finished developing, the condition of the spine would have settled and stabilized as well. But if wearing a brace didn't work, then the next step uh, would be kind of the more drastic last resort option uh, would be to do undergo a invasive surgery where uh, it would involve bone grafts and two metal rods would be inserted either side of the spine. So I was, um, after I was diagnosed, I went through about five years of wearing a body brace and kind of looking at various treatment options, seeing if there was um, a way that I could avoid the surgery, kind of biding my time and seeing how my spine would develop. Uh, but kind of after that, nothing really worked. The bracing didn't work. We tried chiropractors, didn't work. Uh, my condition continued to worsen so uh, that if 
left untreated, it might affect my lungs and my internal organs. So at that point, my doctor was like, no, it's too late. You gotta, you gotta have the surgery. Um, you gotta take this drastic last resort option. So by God's grace, surgery went well, very smoothly, and I'm all good. And it doesn't really limit me in any way at all. So as we read of this vision of Amos in chapter eight, God is saying that the time has come for drastic measures towards the people of Israel. They've been wandering further and further away from God. And despite God's many warnings, as we've seen in chapter four, and the multiple times that he has withheld judgment um, from, as you remember from chapter seven, um, they still have not returned to God and have continued to sin. Therefore, in this vision, God is saying, that's it. Time's up. I've waited long enough. You did not listen. Prepare to receive my judgment upon you. So if you're reading this um, and you're wondering, oh, what is this thing about this basket of fruit? How is this? What's this got to do with anything? There's actually a play on words here. Uh, the, in the original Hebrew, the word for summer fruit and the word for end, uh, they actually sound similar, uh, such that in the NIV version, they translate both using the same word, right, so that it says, the time is right for my people Israel, meaning they have sinned long enough. The time has come for them uh, to receive God's judgment. God will spare them no longer. From the previous vision in chapter 7, verse 9, uh, we read that the high place of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, referring to the destruction of the temple. And the vision here in chapter 8 follows a similar structure and it tells us explicitly what it will be like in the temple on that day of judgment. At the moment, there is joy and singing, uh, but that will be turned into crying and wailing. Now there is life but soon there will be dead bodies everywhere. They will be so utterly destroyed that the dead will remain unburied and a deathly silence will fill what was once a noisy and bustling temple. So the natural questions uh, that follow these words of Amos would be, why will this happen? How will this happen? Will God or anyone else help us? So it makes sense that the words that follow from verse 4 uh, were given immediately after the vision. If you remember from chapter 4, um, Amos had previously addressed the wealthy people of Samaria, the cows of Bashan, as he calls them. But now he focuses on the merchants, these business people, uh, who he accuses of trampling on the poor and putting an end to the needy. So we see that it isn't just one group of people who are oppressing the poor, but that it was common practice throughout their society. And these weren't pagans who rejected or did not keep the Hebrew customs, but in fact, these were practicing or religious Hebrews who would attend the new moon um, festivals and would observe the Sabbath. But although they appeared to be pious and, and in keeping with uh, God's law, uh, you could tell from their actions that their hearts were not really in it. They can hardly wait until these non-working days were over so that they could go back to the markets. They could go back to doing business, making profit. In those days, um, 
weights and measuring containers were used to, to measure out and to weigh out the amounts of money um, and product to be paid and sold. And these merchants would uh, routinely use false balances, false scales um, to manipulate things and cheat whoever they were doing business with. And because of this, uh, the poor people would become more and more in debt, such that oftentimes the merchants would just simply end up buying the poor people themselves as slaves. Now, God hates unrighteousness. And it would have been especially painful to see these merchants oppress and exploit their own people. They were supposed to be God's chosen people and to live in a way that reflected that. But instead, they were no better than the nations that were surrounding them. Therefore, God says in verse 7, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. When the day of judgments come, the land will tremble and darkness will fill the land. It will be a time of great sorrow and mourning, and there will be no question as to who is behind all of this. God says, I will turn your feasts into mourning. I will bring sackcloth on every waist. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. God makes it abundantly clear that this is his judgment upon them in their actions for oppressing the poor. Now, we live in a world nowadays where uh, many people are fearful of being seen as judgmental. We don't want to be seen as intolerant or discriminatory. So this idea that God will judge everyone and send some people to hell is not a popular idea. And it's certainly not an easy topic to bring up in conversation. And we know that uh, Christians are more and more often seen as judgmental. And sometimes um, people fear being judgmental so much that they may downplay or excuse uh, certain crimes that are committed and blame them on things like mental health problems, uh, religious extremism, or kind of educational deficits. But on the other hand, when we hear and read of um, terrible things that are happening in the world every day, like murders, child abuse, human sex trafficking, slavery, etc., etc., there is still a huge part of us that yearns for justice. We want these people who are responsible for these heinous acts to be held accountable. We want them to be punished for what they did. In fact, we do actually want judgment. I remember watching a comedian on TV, and he was making a joke about how he got his childhood nanny fired because he didn't like the way that she was reading him his stories. So in the story Hansel and Gretel, um, so this, they, these siblings, these two children, Hansel and Gretel, uh, they were captured by a wicked witch, and, but they defeated her in the end by pushing her into an oven. By the way, I hope I'm not spoiling the story for anyone. Um, but in any case, uh, what he was saying was he didn't, the comedian didn't like it when his nanny was reading the story to him. And he didn't like the way that when she read it, she showed too much compassion to the witch. The point of the story there was that the wicked witch got what she deserved. In the end, the good guys won and the bad guys lost which is pretty much the standard formula for every movie ever made. The idea that good ultimately trumps evil is an idea that resonates with all of us. It's why we get angered 
uh, when we see injustice. It's why we get angry when we see people being exploited and taken advantage of, uh, because we believe that everyone should be treated fairly. And this is even more so for Christians, uh, because we believe that uh, everyone is created in the image of God, and that there is such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil. Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote in her book, Confronting Christianity, that when we analyze this anger, we find that it ultimately comes from a place of love. She writes this, I'm gonna put the quote up on screen. No one who regards those of other races as subhuman cares about racial exploitation. No one who believes that women or children are property cares about sexual abuse. And the more we love, the more easily our anger is kindled. We rush to defend our children from the least attack because we love them. Anyone who harms them inspires our fury. Likewise, God's judgment is not and cannot be separated from his love. Our anger at the injustices of the world is nothing compared to God's. God's commitment to and standards of righteousness, of justice, is immeasurably greater than ours. And God is the only one who is truly and perfectly righteous, such that in his eyes, all of us, we are all bad guys. Romans chapter three says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. As sinners, we all deserve death. But because of his great love for us, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. All of God's wrath and anger at the evil in us and in the world was poured out on Jesus on the cross once for all, so that for those who put their faith in Jesus, they are now counted righteous. And we know that soon Jesus will return to judge everyone, believers and non-believers alike. And in him, we can take comfort in the fact that he is a completely fair and impartial judge. And all who do wrong will be held accountable. No one will be able to get away with anything. When we read this chapter, it should be a warning to us not to follow in the examples of the Israelites. The final verses of this chapter tells us that when the Israelites finally come to their senses and turn to God, it will be too late. Verse 11 to 12 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. When we persist in sin, when we choose to reject God, sometimes God will simply leave us to suffer the consequences. Similar to chapter 4, when God had sent a famine upon the land, God now promises another famine. But this will not be a famine of food or water, but it will be a famine of hearing God's word. Amos foresees a time when the people will at last turn to God, when things have gotten so bad that they do not see any human solution. But these people who have up until then completely rejected the word of God, will find that there will be no more revelation from God anymore. 
I remember when my brothers and I were young, my dad would teach us not to waste food and to eat every single grain of rice in our bowls. Um, he would tell us about how our grandparents lived through the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong uh, during World War II. And uh, during that time, um, food was uh, scarce. Uh, a lot of people were starving. Uh, food was so scarce that if a banana peel was thrown into the street, then people would rush and fight desperately for it. I don't, maybe we've not experienced famine before, uh, but I'm sure all of us have experienced um, physical hunger uh, at some point in our lives. But in addition to this physical hunger, that I believe that there is also a deeper spiritual hunger that we all share. At our core, we all have this desire to be known, uh, to be loved, to know that our lives have purpose and meaning. The French philosopher and theologian uh, Blaise Pascal wrote this. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. No matter who you are, young, old, rich, poor, whatever, we all seek fulfillment to get to a point where our, our cravings and, uh, and, and desires are satisfied, to get to a point where we can sit back and say, ah, this is it. This is what I'm looking for in life. But what we find that is that in this world, so many people are constantly striving, aiming for the next best thing, always moving forward, but never arriving. We, sell, we say to ourselves, if I could just get this promotion, then I'll be content. If I can make X amount of money every month, then I'll be satisfied. If I can find a spouse or have children, then I'll be truly happy. But in his quote, Pascal describes this desire or craving for happiness and satisfaction as an infinite abyss, such that nothing short of an infinite God will be able to fill it. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, in his search for meaning uh, in life, he writes in chapter two, I search in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. He intends to test his heart. He knows that he has this desire in his heart and he wants to find out whether he can satisfy it with pleasure. And so what is the result of that test? He tells us in these uh, next verses, which I also put up. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Whatever his eyes desired, he obtained. He did not deny himself any pleasure. And yet when he looked back, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Some translations translate uh, vanity as meaningless, but the, in the original Hebrew, um, it can also refer to the word vapor. It's this idea that all the pleasures in this world, everything in this world is temporary, a mere breath, present just for a moment before fading away into nothingness. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The deepest longings of our hearts are still unfulfilled. The infinite abyss will not be filled by finite pleasures. Perhaps you may not realize it at this moment, but what we all ultimately desire is God himself. So let me ask you this. Do you desire God? Do you long for the peace that only God can provide? Then I will point you to Isaiah chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. In this chapter, Amos declares that God will bring judgment upon the Israelites. And likewise, there will be a day of judgment for us as well when Jesus returns. For the Israelites, because of their persistent sin, God withheld his word from them. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. These Israelites are an excellent example of something in the Bible that we should not emulate. Don't be like them. They ignored God's warning, and by the time they realized, it was too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. But the problem is, we know that, but we don't do it. Some people will say, let me enjoy what the world has to offer while I'm still young. And when I'm too old to do anything else, then I'll turn to God. Then I will believe. Or think about the time that you spend on spiritual disciplines, such as prayer and reading the Bible, versus the time uh, you spend uh, studying for school or preparing for work. So many of us, myself included, um, have spent countless hours learning new skills, various languages, skills throughout the years that we're growing up and even today. But yet when it comes to our faith, we struggle to put much effort in. We delay, we procrastinate, we tell ourselves, oh, we'll do it later, we'll do it next week, I'll wait until the New Year's um, and I'll have that as my New Year's resolution. Why do we do that? We know we shouldn't, but yet we still do it. You know, we, we can't seem to bring ourselves to spend time or to put much effort into um, growing in our faith. And I think the first reason for that is because we are all inherently short-sighted. We so easily settle uh, for the fleeting pleasures of this world that we don't even try to attain the greater treasures that God offers. C.S. Lewis, he writes this, 
we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased i think the second reason is that there is often a part of us, even if we might not like to admit it, that simply does not believe that what God offers now is better than what the world offers. We forget that in addition to the heavenly treasures in the future, God also offers a fullness of life on earth now. Our faith is not one that is detached from the world, but it is one that actively engages and challenges the world. And it is only through this lens of faith that we can truly see and understand the world for what it is, that everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And when we live our lives with this understanding uh, in the way that God intends, then we will discover a joy and peace that transcends anything else. This means that as long as we are still living in according according to the ways of the world, we are actually missing out on the blessings that God intends for us to have. So how do we, how do we do this? How do we, how do we seek God? I've recently been introduced to an app called uh, Strava. Uh, maybe some of you will know of it. It's a fitness app that tracks your progress uh, via GPS as you run, as you hike or, or cycle. I've never liked running long distances. I find it uh, super boring. And I know some people really enjoy it, but to me, it's simply a necessary evil that I have to go through in order to kind of build my fitness, build my cardio, so that I can do better at other sports that are less boring. But recently, I've been enjoying running a little bit more uh, since I got the app. Uh, this is because I love looking at my statistics after my run. So the run tracks how far I run, it'll, it'll track the time that I took, and it'll also kind of break down my pace uh, over different stretches uh, of the route. So yeah, it'll give me a kind of breakdown of all my statistics at the end. And I really like looking at it because it tells me whether I'm improving over time, and it also shows me how different factors are affecting my performance. It's a objective and measurable gauge on how I'm doing with my fitness. However, when it comes to our faith, sometimes it's hard to know uh, whether we are growing. It's not something that we can measure. It's not like we can uh, say, last year I was a level one Christian. Right now I'm at level two. And judging by my current progress, I'm on track to become a level three Christian by next year. It just doesn't work like that. But although we can't measure our spiritual growth, um, there are actually ways that we can predict whether someone will grow in their faith. Over the years, uh, multiple studies have concluded that the number one predictor of whether someone will grow in their faith um, or, or for spiritual maturity is that whether there is a daily daily engagement of God's word. In other words, the best way for someone to mature in their faith is to read the Bible every day. 
John chapter 17 is sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer. Um, it is the longest recorded prayer of uh, Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, this was a prayer that Jesus prayed um, just before he was arrested and subsequently crucified. Jesus knew that he would have to leave his disciples and go back to the Father, so he prays for them. He prays for protection from, for the, from the evil one uh, because he knows that uh, the world would reject them because of their faith. And also he prays that they would grow in their faith, that they would mature, uh, become more holy, become more and more like God. In verse 17, he prays that God would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now this process of sanctification, of maturing in our faith, of uh, becoming more holy, more and more like God. From this verse, we can see that uh, it's done by understanding and living in God's truth. And his word is truth. I think nowadays, sometimes we forget how great a blessing the Bible actually is. It's so easily available to us and it's, it's just something we grew up in, grew up with that a lot of times we take it for granted. We see it as just another book sometimes. But we have to remind ourselves that the Bible is literally God's word. The Israelites back then had to rely on prophets and their sin resulted in a famine of God's word. And if God didn't speak through the prophets, there was no other way for them to hear, them, hear God. But today, God's word is literally at our fingertips. We can hold it in our hands. And technology allows us to have access to various translations and multiple languages, all with just a click of a button at all times of the day. So cherish this gift. Read God's word. Meditate on his truth. Ruminate on it. Let it sink in. Allow it to transform you. And over time, you will find an infinite treasure that truly satisfies you. For there will be a day when this gift is no longer available. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a comfort this is. Yes, there will be judgment. But the Bible assures us that if we repent and turn to God, he will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. Judgment day is coming soon. So don't delay. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we live in a time where your word is so easily and so freely available to us, Lord, that we can, that we can simply open our Bibles or with a click of a button, we can read what you have to say to us, Lord. Forgive us when we, when we neglect it, when we took your word for granted, when we um, sometimes even reject it, Lord. I pray that we would um, continue to grow, 
in our understanding of your word and to grow in our love for your word as well, Lord. Forgive us when we, um, when we skim over your word, when we, when in those times where we, uh, when we don't prioritize it, when we simply kind of just read it and, and let it, and, and then it goes out of our, of our minds. So we pray that uh, yeah, you would help us to continue to grow in our faith, to mature, to become more and more like you, Lord. Through your word, help us to understand your truth. Let it transform us, transform our hearts, Lord. And, and help us to, to seek you, Lord. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Malaysia, in Hong Kong, and all over the world, Lord, as we go through this, um, this difficult time. And you are, your word is needed now more than ever, Lord. So help us to cherish it, to, to really take it in and to love it and to grow in it, Lord. Lord, we pray for your blessings upon all of us as we, as we go our ways this week. And we thank you again that we are able to gather as a church to study your word, Lord. So we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.